baseball fan, there's nothing more thrilling than when your favorite team advances to the World Series. Mets fans had that thrill last year, although their hopes of winning the championship were dashed when the Mets lost to the Kansas City Royals in Game 5 of the series. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. It was a much different outcome for Mets fans in 1986. The Amazons won the World Series that year in a matchup against the Boston Red Sox. But what happened after the champagne stopped flowing? A new book explores that question, looking at where life took several members of the 86 Mets after their big victory. It's called Kings of Queens, Life Beyond Baseball with the 86 Mets. The author is sports writer Eric Sherman. Eric, thanks so much for coming in to talk with me. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So where did you grow up, Eric? Well, I grew up in a town in, New- in northern New Jersey, uh, Westwood, New Jersey, and uh, it was um, just a beautiful town. And perhaps more importantly, for the sake of this conversation, which baseball team did you grow up rooting for? <laughs> you know, I get that question asked a lot. I actually grew up rooting for both the Mets and the Yankees, one of those rare people to do so. I was going to say, can you do such a thing? But I guess you can. You did. I did. How long have you been writing about sports in New York? Well, believe it or not, uh, I've been a professional writer since I was 14 years old. I got my first sports writing job for a paper called The Community Life um, in Pascack Valley, uh, which is a part of Berg- Bergen County. It covered eight towns. And I covered mostly high school sports. Uh, but during the summertime, I would do features on professional sports. And back in 1980, I, I actually did a piece on uh, the U.S. boycott of the Olympics. Hmm. Um, so since I was 14, I've, I've gotten paid for my writing. And I, I don't think I missed a single week when I was in high school. I would finish my article, take my bike into town, and um, drop my article through the mail slot of the local newspaper. Was baseball always a favorite sport of yours to cover? Yes. Um, it's always been a favorite of mine because it was the sport that I played the best at. I played through high school. I was an all-county player for Westwood. Then I played through college at Emerson College, which is a Division three school up in Boston. And up until I injured my back a couple of years ago, uh, I'm 50 years old now, so I stopped playing in a men's league when I was 48. So maybe I'll make a comeback. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I'd love to. <laughs> So for this book, you interviewed several members of the 86 Mets. What were you hoping to accomplish when you set out to write this book? I wanted to deliver a book uh, that had a different angle than any of the others written about this 86 Mets team. And you yourself wrote about the 86 Mets prior, right? With Mookie Wilson. I did, yeah. Um, I was the co-author on Mookie Wilson's uh, memoir, uh, Mookie Life Baseball and the 86 Mets. And really, that's what led me into this project, which is my fourth book. I saw the the rock star turnouts at the book signings for Mookie, um, you know, five, six hundred people. Uh, we did eight of them in a six day peri- period. And it was just so impressive, you know, sitting next to him, signing books with him and hearing the love and the feedback from the fans all these years later. So 
I knew if I was going to do a book on the 86 Mets that it would have to be different. And what I decided to do was to do something similar to what Roger Kahn did with the Brooklyn Dodgers, going back and visiting the key and the more riveting players who maybe not necessarily were stars on that team, but but had just have had fascinating lives since that 86 season. So I chose 14 of the key and most riveting players from that team, traveled around the country to visit them uh, in, in their living rooms, in their favorite restaurants, uh, in the dugouts where they might be coaching, uh, wherever their current environments were, and I would ask for 45 minutes. And the average interview went about four hours, with wow. two of them going seven. <laughs> so Who the, went the longest? It was a tie. Um, Ed Hearn, the catcher that backed up Gary Carter, and Doug Sisk, who was probably the only unpopular player from that 86 team, which is why I found the chapter I did with him to be fascinating. Yeah, unpopular, I guess, is kind of tame. He was pretty much hated by a lot of people. Why? Yeah, um, the name of that chapter is One Was Maligned. And Doug Sisk was one of the best pitchers in baseball in 83 and almost all of 84 for the Mets as a relief pitcher. And unbeknownst to him, he had bone chips in his elbow. But the team, they didn't diagnose it. And, and they really didn't know what was going on until about midway through the 85 season. But in the meantime, poor Doug Sisk is costing the Mets games. He's coming in from the bullpen and he's blowing games. And so they narrowly lost the division title in 84, narrowly lost in 85. And a lot of the blame for that was put on poor Doug Sisk, who was playing hurt. But there were death threats against Doug Sisk, uh, people following him home. Someone sent him a prescription for cyanide um, to Shea, Shea Stadium, and the directions were taken till termination. Just horrible stuff. Somebody pointed a gun at him uh, as he was leaving the Shea Stadium parking lot with uh, Jesse Orozco. It turned out it was a fake gun, but it, it scared the heck out of him. So I I found that fascinating how Doug Sisk took his experiences as both one of the best pitchers the Mets had and one of the worst pitchers that they had and and how he's worked with children to teach them about the ups and downs of sports. I was going to say how does he feel about that time period in his life looking back on it but it seems like he turned that negative into a positive. It still hurts it still stings but yes um, and there's a common theme with a lot of these guys, you know, with, with the 86 Mets, some, some of them have gone through drug and alcohol addiction. Some have gone through bankruptcy. Some have had daunting health cha challenges. Kevin Mitchell, uh, his daughter was, was murdered. Bobby Ojeda was in a fatal boating accident that took the lives of two of his teammates. So they've all used these experiences to turn it around and to help others. Um, and I and I think that's a common thread throughout this book. In this book, you also talk about how many of them have turned to God and really have devoted a lot of time to their faith. Very true. Uh, Daryl Strawberry, who lived life in the fast lane, um, who, who, who smoked crack, um, was a drug addict, had given up on life after two bouts of cancer. He's now in evangelical preacher who travels about 40 weeks a year um, talking about his journey. 
Dwight Gooden has battled drugs and alcohol, and now he goes to schools to teach kids about the perils of drugs and how his faith in God has helped really save his life. And, you know, there's, there's a common thread here, too, that if you want to wrap a ribbon around this book, you, you start and finish with Gary Carter. Gary Carter, the only member of the 86 Mets who has passed on. Which is fascinating. If, if, if you had gotten odds in Las Vegas, who would be the first Met from that 86 team to pass away? Gary Carter would be a million to one. He would be the last one. Um, he was a family man, a man of faith read the Bible every day, uh, didn't go out carousing with the rest of the players. So he was very much left out and not really friends with with any of the Mets when he first joined the team. His nickname was Camera Carter because of all the commercials he did. And and um, What position for those unfamiliar? Oh, uh, he was the catcher. He uh, The only Hall of Famer from that team, too, uh, Hall of Fame ca- catcher. So uh, he came from the Expos. They were a division rival. So he wasn't really accepted by that team because he was kind of seen as a goody two-shoes. But in in, in fact, his wife, Sandy, um, uh, his widow, Sandy, who I interviewed for this book, once had a conversation with Gary while he was on the road. And and Gary said, yeah, I went to the movies with my three best friends. And she said, who? Me, myself, and I. Mm. But... Now, Gary Carter is so admired by those same players that kept their distance from him, wishing that they had lived their lives more like Gary Carter did. And how did he die? Brain uh, cancer. Mm. Lenny Dykstra spent time in prison. He did. Lenny Dykstra had a tremendous amount of success after baseball initially um, in the car wash business, options trading. Um, in fact, um, Kramer of, um, of CNBC once said that Lenny Dykstra was one of Wall Street's great ones. Um, and in an 18-month period, it all came crashing down, a spectacular fall um, in his fi- finances. Uh, he went from being worth, um, one person that I interviewed said he was worth at one point $100 million dollars. And about 18 months later, it was all gone because as his manager, Dave, Davey Johnson, uh, noted in the forward that he wrote, um, he just keeps doubling down. He's a gambler and uh, he just gambled uh, his fortune away. So he did go go to prison. And it was what were the charges? Grand theft auto, um, um, fal- falsifying a, a credit application, a number of charges a list of charges really and um uh he was beaten in prison uh lost a lot of his teeth um and um he's out now and he's trying to put his life back together and get back on the right track ed hearn got back on the right track he went on to do motivational speaking and quite interestingly he went on to do motivational speaking very soon after trying to kill himself Yes, uh, days after, uh, which is one of the most incredible stories in the book. And he was the first one that I went to see because to, to me, his, he's lived the life of Job since the 86th season. You know, he was traded uh, for David Cohn, 
He went to the Kansas City Royals, and David Cohn came to the Mets and had a borderline Hall of Fame career. It's been called the worst one-sided trade in baseball history. Well, the worst trade probably the Royals have ever made, I should say. Probably the one of the best the Mets ever made. But, yeah, um, he uh, he's had um, three uh, kidney transplants. And he lives today, but uh, many, many bouts with can- cancer and just a terrible, terrible um, life as far as health goes. Uh, he's still around today, and um, it's it, it's just been awful. But uh, What inspired that turnaround for him, for someone who thought it to be so bad, he wanted to take his own life to saying, you know what, no, I need to persevere and help other people? Again, it, it was faith. Uh, he's a Christian and when he had that gun in his hand, uh, he, he looked over at a photo of his wife and, and his newborn child. And, um, I mean, he had even written a suicide uh, letter, so he was ready to go. And he thought about his wife, he thought about his baby, and then he thought about his faith and that gave him pause to give himself another day. You describe Kevin Mitchell as one of the most misunderstood players of his generation. How so? He was. Uh, he was the thug who wasn't, uh, as the chapter's t- title goes. When he came to the Mets, he had a reputation of being a thug. Uh, he, he grew up in the rough part of San Diego, uh, just gang-infested. And But... Uh, the Mets were very, very worried that he would have a bad influence on guys like Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden, when in fact uh, Kevin Mitchell, until he came to the to the Mets big club, had never had a drink in his life, had never done drugs, um, and he had to learn to defend himself. Uh, you know, coming from where he was, so he wasn't afraid to back down from a fight, but he was hardly a bad influence on on those young Mets players. Uh, but the front office saw it differently, and they traded him immediately after the 86 season, which uh, turned out to be a huge mistake because just three years later, he was the National League most valuable player, and he had a great career. And to a man, every one of the Mets players that I interviewed said that the biggest difference between the 86 championship team, which was a tremendously talented team, the reason they never won another championship was because they lost the psychological edge, the intimidation factor that guys like Kevin Mitchell and and Ray Knight, guys like that, when they lost them, they lost this intimidation factor that uh, really helped them uh, against other teams. And they never did repeat, and a lot of the players point to losing those two guys as the primary reason. I can't remember who it was in the book. There was this great quote about the 86 team, that they were really out there to conquer your villages or something like that. (laughs) It was from Bobby Ojeda, who uh, had as much swagger as anyone on that team. Bobby Ojeda was a very average pedestrian pitcher with the Boston Red Sox for about six seasons. Uh, He was a left-hander, he was a veteran, and he was exactly what that 86 Mets team needed because they needed another lefty starter and they needed a veteran to help the young guys like Ron Darling, Dwight Gooden, Sid Fernandez. So he became the real anchor of that staff and greatly improved when he came to the Mets. 
Um, and um, but he brought a swagger to that team and a take no prisoners attitude that the rest of the club really embraced. And um, and you know he called himself a, a square peg in a round pole, uh, hole when he was with the Red Sox. But when he came to the Mets with all those other guys that were full of of bravado, he fit right in. So take us back to 1986 and set the scene for us for this Mets championship. Well, it started on day one. You know, they were coming off uh, seasons in 84 and 85 where they combined to win more games than any other team in baseball. So in 86... They had made a couple of more moves prior to the season to address the one or two weaknesses that they still had. And Davey Johnson, the manager, gets up there in front of all the players on day one, and he said to his team, and, and understand, this never happens. Uh, he, he, he goes, um, we're not just going to win it all this year. We're going to dominate. <laughs> and some of the players, like Keith Hernandez, who I spoke to, who was the captain of the team, he goes, oh, my goodness dominate and uh but davy johnson knew what the heck he was talking about he knew that they were ready to go and if they stayed healthy um no one was going to touch that team in the division now the playoffs were a different story and how did that play out the playoffs (laughs) it was probably the most spectacular postseason in baseball history from the mets side they had an a positively thrilling National League Championship Series victory over the Houston Astros, which centered around um, a pitcher on the Astros named Mike Scott, who positively not only dominated the Mets, the only pitcher all season to do it. You know, the Mets won 108 games in the regular season. Less than 20 teams in the history of baseball ever did that. But Mike Scott was, uh, well, he, he was scuffing the ball. He hmm. was. And when you scuff a baseball, it, it moves in all kinds of different directions and is almost impossible to hit. So he had beaten the Mets twice in that series and was going to pitch against them in Game 7, uh, if there was a Game 7. So the Mets had to win Game 6 to end the series, or else they were dead. And they knew that. So Game 6, they fall behind 3 nothing in the first inning, and then both teams put up zeros until the ninth inning. The Mets tie it miraculously, in the top of the ninth. It's in the Astrodome in Houston. The game goes back and forth, goes to the 16th inning. The Mets score three runs, but the Astros put up two runs in their half of the inning, and they have the winning runs, the winning run on base. So a hit up the gap, and the Astros are going to win this thing. But Jesse Orozco ends the game. He was the relief pitcher that ended it. So thrilling series. They go on to the World Series. They drop the first two to the Boston Red Sox. They battle back. Uh, They're one strike away from losing the World Series in Game 6. Down two runs. Nobody on base. And they start this rally. Three straight hits. And then Mookie Wilson comes up. And Bob Stanley throws a wild pitch that Wilson gets out of the way of. The tying uh, Kevin Mitchell scores the tying run. Then, of course, Mookie hits the ground ball, the infamous ground ball that goes through Bill Buckner's legs. Ray Knight scores with the winning run. We go to a game seven. Mets fall behind 3 nothing early. Ron Darling, one of their aces, gets knocked out early. 
and Davey Johnson just puts together a relief corps to hold them until the Mets are able to come back and they win just a thrilling Game 7 at Shea Stadium. Um, just a miraculous postseason where really the Mets were, you know, they came back from the dead a few times. When you talk to the players about that game, do they beam or was it just something that was a part of their life as they look back? You mean game six of the 86 Yeah, when they look back at that championship, when they look back at this time period in their lives, is it something that they look back with with extreme pride or are they looking forward, focused on these other things that they're a part of today, focused on motivational speaking or being a minister? Uh, It's a great question. Uh, Really, there's a couple of answers. Um, How they were feeling then, uh, it depends who you talk to. Some of them thought that it was pretty much over when they were two outs, nobody on in game six uh, before they started that ferocious rally. But some of them, like Davey Johnson, the manager, was like, no, I mean, we've been coming back from games all year. We, you know, until that last strike, I, you know, he honestly didn't think that they were finished. Now, how do they feel about it today? They all have told me that a few days don't go by when they don't think about that magical 80, 86 mm. season. Even Doug Sisk told, told me that. He, he said, you know, he said, Eric, you know, you should ask every player on this team, which I did if they still think about 86 often, and they do. They think about it a few days a week. The only one that thinks about it a little bit less than the rest is Daryl Strawberry, um, who has really tried to put uh, his baseball career on the back burner because there were some negatives. He, you know, There's still the twinkle in his eye, but, um, but while he was a player, that's when you know the alcohol and the drug abuse started, and now he's so focused on being a preacher, um, and he's much more concerned now, as he says, with saving souls than hitting home runs. At the time, the 86 Mets were known as being frat boys, but how much different were they than any other team playing baseball at the time? If you ask Keith Hernandez, not any different at all. It was a time where... Um, Cocaine was a big problem in baseball. Um, 1985 was the year of the Pittsburgh drug trials. And uh, eight players were called to testify, uh, including Keith Hernandez, but also guys like Dave Parker and uh, Dale Barra and some of the others. Um, and so uh, cocaine was a problem uh, in baseball. Uh, alcohol was a big problem. And I think Part of the reason for that was you didn't have the money in the game that you have today. Players didn't take care of themselves as well as they do now because today an average player might make $6 million a year with the very best of them making 25 or $30 million a year. So when they leave the ballpark, it's not with their teammates you know, to go to the strip clubs. Uh, it is, they're, they're leaving the ballparks a lot of times with their nutritionist, with their agent, uh, with their publicist. Uh, It's a very, very different game today. And I think it has a lot to do with the money that's on the table. How much do the 86 Mets stay in touch with each other? Are they a tight-knit bunch? Well, they get together um, at these autograph shows once in a while. Every once in a while, like a Steiner Sports will put together a big event um, where they'll invite back 
the 86 Mets. And every two or three years, they'll do something. Or maybe three or four of them will be at a card show to do a signing. And many of them have told me that they don't do it for the money. They do it to get back together with their old teammates. There, I, I went to an event they had back in January on Long Island. And it's fascinating to me how close these guys are and how much they really enjoyed it. And there was a, just a huge bar at this hotel that they were staying at. And, um, you know, seven or eight of them would be at a table just reminiscing. So they're pretty close. What would you say has been the biggest takeaway for you in interviewing all of these players? The evolution of their relationship with Gary Carter, for sure. How what what how they felt about him when he first came to the Mets compared to how they felt about him when they went when many of them went to his funeral. But the other big surprise in this book was what I said before about how they felt about the uh, the importance of having the intimidators, the enforcers, Ray Knight and Kevin Mitchell. And I'll tell you why that's a big surprise, because they basically replaced Kevin Mitchell with Kevin McReynolds, who was an established you, a star player uh, that they got from the Padres. Good player, solid, but he didn't have that bravado. And they basically replaced uh, Ray Knight as their primary third baseman with Howard Johnson, who three times hit over 30 home runs and stole over 30 bases. He was an all-star talent-wise, but he kind of kept to himself. So they lost these enforcers. So what I learned from that was how important the psychology of the game is, the intimidation factor when you have players like like Mitchell and Knight uh, when you know you go to war against your rivals. How different would you say the 86 Mets are compared to the 2016 Mets? Well, you know, they're very different. You know, when, you know, I mean, the 86 Mets, almost all of them, with the exception of Mookie Wilson and Gary Carter, I mean, they went out and they partied really hard. And these 86 Mets, uh, you know, they, uh, a lot of them um, come to the ballpark you know, they kind of tune out in a way like like you can tell that they have fun, but not as much fun. You know, they're studying, uh, you know, they have laptops now where they're studying, you know, other pitchers, opposing pitchers and opposing hitters. And so what happens after the game, I think, is very different. But from a talent perspective, I think the pitching staffs match up really, really well. Uh, but this team has nothing on the 86 team. Uh, as far as offense, uh, that Mets offense, I would say, with the exception of the shortstop, Rafael Santana, I mean, they had an all star at almost every position and they platooned at uh, different positions in 86 uh, for the lefty righty matchups. So they could, you know, depending on the pitcher, either have a Mookie Wilson or a Lenny Dykstra up against you or a Wally Backman or a Tim Tuffle at second base up against you. So it was um, a team that scored a lot of runs, stole a lot of bases and hit a lot of home runs. And this edition of the Mets team, if they're going to win it all, it's going to be on the strength of their pitching. How does City Field compare to Shea? Any feelings about that? I like City Field. I think they did a good job on it. It's fan friendly. 
Uh, but Shea Stadium literally shook. And Mookie Wilson would tell me the story how, you, you know, he was zoned in in that famous game six at bat. Uh, he didn't hear the fans, but he felt them because the ground was literally shaking. And uh, that's how they used to build ballparks. You know, the same with Yankee Stadium. You know, Yankee Stadium has really, I think, lost its home field advantage. Uh, the old Yankee Stadium, the fans, the upper deck would overhang practically over the field and was really intimidating for opposing teams. And that place would shake, too, and would get loud. And now it's more set back. And, and now you have these $1,500 luxury seats. So the real fans, the real rowdy fans aren't in the lower sections. But um, City Field matches up pretty well. But there's there was nothing quite like Shea uh, in terms of how loud and how it would shake. All right, Eric, anything we didn't talk about that you would want to talk about about the Kings of Queens? Just that I think I will pull the readers into the rooms that I talk to these guys in. I think I painted a very good picture of the environment, what my thoughts were as I was talking with these guys. And um, I think um, that's a real benefit to the book that they're not going to get anywhere else. The book is Kings of Queens, Life Beyond Baseball with the 86 Mets. Eric Sherman, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Eric Sherman is the author of Kings of Queens, Life Beyond Baseball with the 86 Mets, as well as other baseball-themed books. Find out more at ericshermanbaseball.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producers Claire Drake and Zach Salas. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.